Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The following podcast includes explicit language, not restricted to words beginning with F, S, B, and Q. Hi, this is Josh Levine, Slate's national editor. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 7th, 2022. On this week's show, Hannah Kaiser of Yahoo Sports will join us to talk about the Houston Astros World Series triumph. We'll also discuss LSU's win over Alabama. Just pause to let that sink in. Georgia's victory over Tennessee and the current state of things and the meat grinder of SEC football. And speaking of SEC football, we'll discuss Herschel Walker's candidacy for the United States Senate and what's motivating it. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Check out our new season on 1942. New episodes coming out every week. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Wild and Outside, Word Freak, and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. How's your weekend? Some uh, good, good times. Yeah. Good sports results for uh, for all of our teams. Yeah, yeah. Since you don't really care as much about, you know, sports teams, then uh, you're just happy for us. Slander, but I am happy for you. Did you watch the uh, Major League Soccer final? That was the best sporting event of the weekend. I saw the last couple of goals. Uh, it was pretty exciting. I would not say it was the best sporting event of the weekend, well, but, you know, yeah. it's your journey. It is my okay. journey. That was the most exciting game. That was fucking crazy. Do you want to say who won? Or because uh, I don't know. LA, I don't, I didn't LAFC it. over Philadelphia in about oh, hundred and nine thousand right. minutes. Um, Gareth Bale scored a tying goal equalizer in the hundred and twenty eighth minute. The LA goalkeeper Maxime Crapeau, who's the number two on Canada, will not be in the World Cup now because he like broke his leg after trying to stop a breakaway. Uh, they got he got red carded for that. They played with ten men. If you break your leg, shouldn't the red card be waved off? The poor ref looked very sad when he had to pull out the red card and give it to him <laughs> while he was like being strapped to a gurney. Mm. Uh, Philly went ahead in the 124th. L.A. tied it in the 128th. Total mayhem. The game was in L.A. You know, great atmosphere. And then Philadelphia missed its first three penalty uh, kicks. LAFC goalkeeper is a Philly guy too, and the LAFC goalkeeper, the the well, the the backup LA, LAFC goalkeeper who had to come on is a Philly guy. Great game, really exciting. Mm, sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just Stefan's fault for not uh, hyping yeah. it up. That's Joel Anderson, and Joel, I see mm. that your wife is really concerned about that you're kind of setting yourself up for disappointment this coming weekend. Oh well, yeah. I mean, it's. Really stressful. I don't. I know you don't know anything about this, but when your college football team is undefeated and in the running for the college football playoff, every week gets more intense, a little bit more stressful. And uh, <laughs> TCU has to play at Texas in Austin this weekend. Uh, well, ESPN based on what I've heard for, from you for the last, you know, however long I've known you, the Texas football program is basically a, a minor speed bump for any serious college football team. So I'm not too worried for you. Well, I mean, again, the thing is, I mean, the important thing to hear, remember here is that Texas is like the wealthiest college athletic program in the, <laughs> in the country. All they right. have all the resources, all, right. all the five-star recruits. They have all the advantage. They have this game is at home. 
Uh, you know, I mean, really, this should be a layup for them. We're just a little old TCU. We're not going to the SEC, so can I? I, mean, I, I you know, I, can we just wait for us. the segment on college football? Because I'm really <laughs> curious to see whether right. Joel is finally happy that TCU won another football we'll game. And, and we're about and, and we're uh, in, in mere moments going to talk about Joel's other triumph of of the. Oh weekend. yeah, do you guys want to talk about uh, what happened in that World Series? I think we should, right, Kevin? We'll Stephen? do it. In moments. Okay, all right. Um, and in our Slate Plus segment, we'll check in on Kyrie Irving's apology tour, which has mostly been a non-apology tour, um, but we'll get into it uh, in the Plus segment, as noted. And uh, to get that, you need to be a Slate Plus member. You'll get bonus segments like this one. You'll get ad-free shows. You'll get to support us. Um, and to do that, just go to slate.com slash hangupplus, and we'll uh, try to make it worth your while. Slate.com slash hangupplus. The Houston Astros won the World Series on Saturday night in six games over the Philadelphia Phillies. It was a terrific series that included a crazy comeback, a no-hitter, a bunch of long-clutch bombs, and in the end, shutdown pitching and timely bombing by the winners. Houston may have cheated its way to the 2017 championship, but it's impossible to begrudge a good guy, 73-year-old, Dusty Baker's first title as a manager after more than 2,000 regular season wins, or to deny the Astros' recent dominance of the sport. Hannah Kaiser is with us now. She's a national baseball writer for Yahoo Sports. Hey, Hannah, thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. In your series wrap-up story, you wrote that the Astros are relentless, ruthless, committed to winning at all costs. It's why they cheated and maybe why they didn't have to. I think that's a great observation because it's easy to look at Houston as BC and AC before cheating and after cheating. But in fact, the team's approach has been pretty consistent since it tanked in the mid-2010s before becoming great. How have they done it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that their approach has been consistent so much as their ethos of how they approach things has become consistent. That was really sort of going into um, the World Series. But actually, even before that, I I went to Houston in August with the attempt to answer the question of how are they always so good? Uh, There's sort of two teams that represent that right now, which is the Dodgers and the Astros. And the Astros have more success in the postseason, so they're actually even more interesting in terms of sort of how are you staying so good when – what you originally did to be good, like tanking, which the Astros did, uh, is now widespread. Um, and I think what I sort of came upon in the, in the final game of this <laughs> World Series, in the final game of the season, talking to uh, the current general manager, James Click, was this idea of like, there's no complacency. So it's not that they have a consistent approach, it's that they have an inconsistent approach, that they are sort of always looking for the latest edge. I think not to sort of absolve them of the cheating by any means, but what I think that's interesting is that what they were doing at the time was sort of increasingly cracked down on after they did it. So which is not to say that it was legal. It was, it was very illegal. They knew they were doing something illegal. Um, it was a very complicated system. It was so it was a premeditated crime, but it is true that sort of this, um, as technology had develop within the game the uses of technology and obviously the attempts to sort of find a competitive advantage with technology had had sort of also crept up. And that's why I sort of said that that cheating is reflective of the same ethos that they're obviously still sort of looking for that competitive edge all the time. Now it's, and it's also often still technology, which I think is interesting. It's, um, it's legal technology now. It's, uh, it's finding 
the latest hitting machines or whatever. They're they're always sort of trying to do what's coming next. So, Hannah, for for the people in in the sport that follow the sport, as a Houstonian, I just sort of have this question. So, does this championship vindicate those years, or is it does it actually cast more suspicion on them? Because I, you know, I can't help but notice people following the World Series on social media, and they say, "Well, they're still cheating." I mean, look at the pitcher. You know, you know, maybe he's you got some substance on the ball or whatever else. Did this championship in any way like prove that? Oh, the Astros don't need to cheat, or is there still like a cloud of suspicion over the franchise at this point? Right. It's like I think that the, that goes unfortunately sort of hand in hand with the thing that I'm saying, which is we I think we want baseball to be this perfect level playing field where every day, you know, nine guys from each team go out and see who's better at baseball that day. But of course, that's not the case. Like the teams that are successful, the organizations that are successful in this day and age are ones that are not just playing baseball on a baseball playing field. They're doing all these things sort of behind the scenes. We think of the Rays, I guess, as the uh, the poster children for that, but, but the Astros too. And I, I'm sort of in a roundabout way saying that like, I don't think they were cheating. I don't think Robert Valdez was using sticky stuff. I think that there's like no way they would have just sort of let that happen at the World Series when we exist in a game where pitchers are checked all the time. But I do think that like they it is hard to not wonder what they are doing to win and hopefully what they're doing to win is legal <laughs> or at least is sort of legal within the strange confines of the sport. That's, I mean, right now the way that baseball works is, you know, you hire lots of smart people and they, they look for every possible loophole and edge. And, and that's an accepted part of the sport. I mean, the rules are going to change for next season and the people who are changing the rules and the people who work in baseball all understand that as soon as those rules change, every organization is going to start trying to figure out where's the loophole in the rules as they are written. Um, and then maybe those loopholes will get closed and you'll look for new loopholes. <laughs> and so I think it's, you know, the Astros are successful because they're really good at finding those loopholes. And sometimes they find loopholes that don't exist. So five players are on the roster from the previous World Series. A lot of important players, you know, Bregman, Altuve, Verlander. Um, but this is the team that has been rebuilt, as every baseball team is. Um, and so the thing that is worth examining and that's extraordinary is their, as, and this is the reason why you went there in August, it's their sustained regular season success over the last five years, which is only matched by the Dodgers. And is kind of, and it, there are various ways you can slice and dice the numbers that say they're one of the most successful franchises over this period of time in the history of the sport um, in terms of consistent results, in terms of postseason results. And so, you know, when we look at what is this postseason, what does this series mean, it really doesn't mean anything in terms of what we should think about the franchise. It changes kind of the narrative around them because we now look at them as a two-time World Series winner. But just given the randomness of these outcomes, um, it it doesn't say anything that losing to the Phillies in six games or seven games wouldn't have said. But, it, you know, what what does it change? I guess it changes how we think about Dusty Baker or it changes maybe how Dusty Baker thinks about themselves. Like, what would you say um, is different now that this kind of this World Series is over? Like, what are what are the things that we should think about differently? I mean, what I think is really interesting is 
the Dodgers and Astros are, I wrote, what I wrote in August is, you know, we're actually, I guess I wrote in September. So, you know, we're a month out from the postseason. Um, but we already know the best two teams in baseball. It's been the best two teams in baseball for a long time. It's the Dodgers and the Astros. And what's really interesting is the Dodgers are perhaps best known for not having as much postseason success, sort of commensurate with the regular season success. And now the Astros have won two World Series. And there is so much randomness. I'm, I'm kind of, I have like a, I'm a real like relativist about the postseason. I'm kind of like, well, that's the sport. So you should be good at that. And what I really think actually is interesting about this World Series is that on the National League side, we had people really hand-wringing around like, well, if the Dodgers can lose and the Mets can lose, then when the Braves can lose, is this postseason quote-unquote fair or whatever? Um, but the Astros are both the best team in the regular season for a long time in the American League, um, and they found a way to be successful in the postseason. And I always think what's interesting is like, Coming out of any World Series, what do the other 29 teams or what do even 30 teams sort of learn about how to have success? Um, and I'm sure we'll get into this. The Astros have an insane amount of homegrown pitching talent. And I think even you could say the postseason is completely random and it's totally true. The, the Phillies could have beat them in six or seven games. But I actually do think that having like an insane amount of homegrown pitching talent is a pretty good winning formula. So on like a pure baseball front, that seems like what this World Series changes is just sort of what it takes to be more successful in the postseason than just in the regular season. Well, and also their ability to replace important people when mm-hmm. they leave. Garrett Cole left in 2019, no problem. Uh, George Springer left in free agency after the 2020 season. His replacements were better in 2021. Carlos Correa leaves after the last season, and they just plug in Jeremy Pena, who goes on to become the World Series most valuable player um, as a rookie. Um, their pitching was ridiculous. And you looked at yeah. the World Series, particularly the last three games, and you're like, okay, yeah, there's no doubt this was the much, much better team. Great starting pitching, that no-hitter, pressure relief pitching. Um, the last two games were 3-2 to two and 4-1. to one. Uh, the Phillies batted 163 um, uh, for the whole series, and that includes the game where they hit five home runs and won seven to nothing. I mean, you, it's hard to come out of this World Series and not feel like, wow, that is a that is a dominant team, in spite of all that we know about short series and randomness in the playoffs. I mean, I think they do. Uh, they're almost like a perfect team. They they lack a bat. Um, <laughs> they they you know Dusty Baker had a, what was ended up being preps a controversial quote that would have gotten more attention if they had lost. But he said something about, you know, my job would be easier if I had um, Bryce Harper at DH. And it's true. They they were sort of down at bat. They really missed um, having Michael Brantley healthy. But, uh, yeah, it's really tough to beat really good pitching. Is I mean, it's really tough to beat really good pitching, and it's particularly really tough to beat really good pitching that comes in the form of having lots of pitchers um, when you're – really, really tired at the end of the month. Like, the postseason is a war of attrition. I think we've seen it more exaggerated in previous years. Like, last year, I think, felt particularly like, you know, who's who's going to have enough pitchers with arms and legs that can still function by the end of the, the postseason that will win the World Series? But it's always that way a little bit. I think what the, the Phillies sort of ran into, or at least what it really looked like, was like, they're not built to go the distance necessarily. They're built to be incredible in at any sort of given moment. Um, but the Astros, because of their pitching, were just sort of really built to go the distance. Uh, Hannah, you just mentioned Dusty Baker. Uh, Kevin, can you play that clip? 
Yeah. Well, you know, so I don't think about being the oldest. I don't think about my age, but I do think about, uh, you know, being uh, the third black manager with Dave Roberts and my good friend, Cito Gaston, who's responsible really for me as a kid when I first signed with the Braves. I was 18 years old and he took care of me in Little Rock, Arkansas. And, uh, you know, while we were playing there, and, uh, you know, I, I talked to him all the time. And one of the uh, one of the uh, things that I really treasure is that we're on the same like manager bubblegum card. <laughs> and so Cito, Cito's my man. You only get that base in Houston. But I mean, so even the people that hate the Astros, and there are a lot of them, really seem to like if not love, Dusty Baker. So can you talk a little bit about what Dusty has meant um, for the franchise both on the diamond and off, like in terms of reputation management uh, in the last few years here? I think you said it perfectly. <laughs> it's harder to hate them. That's sort of why he was brought in and it, and, and it worked. Yeah, I mean, I think they needed legitimacy, which is interesting, right, because I think earlier in his career, Dusty didn't, necessarily bring that air of legitimacy and that was maybe an unfair reaction that we all had to him and so it's as wonderful for him as it is for the Astros to see that at this point in his career he's sort of universally viewed as like um someone who can who can bring that legitimacy to a club and who can uh be respected and taken at face value and sort of seen as someone who loves the game it's interesting it's like the Astros are 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 like Right, because they have this McKinsey and business and tanking um aura around them. I think we don't always appreciate that like the people involved also really love baseball and, and Dusty Baker is so good at articulating his love for baseball and why people love baseball. Um and I think that was really helpful in the past couple of years. It's also just interesting because in general, starting pitching was a little bit more prominent in this postseason than it has been in recent years. Um, and that's something Dusty loves to do. He's got the right team for it, uh, which is stick with his starters. And if it hadn't worked, we'd be talking about how you shouldn't be sticking with your starters, but it did work. And so we can, we can commend him for the, uh, faith he shows in his players and the, the trust he puts in his players. Um, after the World Series, after he had been named World Series MVP, Jeremy Pena talked about, um, obviously the, the organization put so much faith in him, letting Carlos Correa walk in free agency, having him, uh, not going after other, uh, shortstops that were available at the free agent market. But he also talked about the faith that Dusty showed in him, sort of moving him up in the lineup. He, he's been batting second for a long time and, and we saw how important it was, not just his success, but like his success in the way it set up Jordan Alvarez in, at certain times and the way it sort of protected Jordan Alvarez, or the way Jordan Alvarez protected him. So I think that lineup choice um, was a really important one and one that, that Jeremy Pena cited as like, it's great that Dusty had this faith in me and his his stamp of approval means so much to the players that I think that that helps them bring out the best in them. So in Moneyball, the book and the movie, one of the main plot points is the conflict between the old school manager, Art Howe, and the new school GM, Billy Bean. And there's nobody more old school than Dusty Baker. I mean, you kind of alluded to this before, Hannah, but back when um, Dusty was not universally beloved, he was, you know, I guess the the cruelest way you could put it is like some people said that he ruined Mark Pryor and Kerry Wood's careers with the Cubs, which is perhaps reductive and unfair, but like he had that tag on him. Um, and so you would think that an organization that was so analytically minded that there could potentially be conflict. Um, 
So is my view correct that there actually wasn't any conflict? And if that is the case, is it because there's now kind of a broader view that like managers are responsible for vibes and like Dusty oh, no, has I think the best there's vibes? conflict. I think there's conflict. I think <laughs> my premise is incorrect. Correct. Your premise me. is incorrect. <laughs> um, we don't. I'm not gonna. I'm trying. I'm gonna try not to sort of speak at a turn. I don't. I'm not as sourced up on the Astros as plenty of other people are. Um, and if any of us knew what was going to happen, we would have reported it. Uh, neither Dusty nor the GM James Click had a contract after October 31st. <laughs> um, and, and that's unusual. It's unusual for, for managers and GMs to be sort of lame duck. They usually, they work out in spring training or at some point in the season. It's especially weird to go into a World Series <laughs> where neither, neither the GM or the manager is employed beyond the end of the World Series. Uh, and there's been a lot of speculation around why both why Jim Crane, the, the Astros owner, hasn't committed to them further, but also sort of what the moving pieces are. So there's sort of three players in this. There's Jim Crane, the owner. There's James Click, the general manager. And then there's Dusty, the manager. And for a couple of years now, I think, actually, sort of ever since both um, James Click and, and Dusty were brought in immediately following the scandal, there's been this like, how are these three pieces going to fit together type thing because of that, because Dusty is so old school. James Click comes from the Rays, a very new school team, but also because they were kind of hired really quickly. They were hired in a moment of need. They were hired, I think, in like January, which is not when you want to be hiring your your GM. <laughs> and so we don't know what's going to happen. There's a surprising amount of speculation that James Click will not be brought back and um, given ample opportunity to address that. Jim Crane has opted to not commit to him beyond this World Series. Uh, that would be very strange. That's very strange. That, I mean, I, I, there's not like a, I don't have a good explanation for that because I don't know that there is one. And if there is one, nobody knows it yet. And perhaps it'll come out when that decision is made. But I imagine that part of that is how those three prongs fit together. There's been a sense that Chandler Rome of the Houston Chronicle wrote right after the World Series about how like there have been instances which sort of Jim Crane sided with Dusty over James Click, and that was his weird choice because usually the GM would get to make those choices. But also Dusty's 73, and he just won a World Series. And I know he's always said that if he wins one, he wants to win two, but I'm not sure that he wants to stick around. It's, it's a lot, it's a lot of moving pieces. So yeah, you, you, you've hit on, you've hit on the correct point of like, well, that's strange. And yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, to wrap things up here, Hannah, I think there's a couple other things I would want to say. One is that, you know, Dusty Baker was, we say, not beloved, partly because he lost a couple of critical game sixes um, when he managed the Cubs and the Giants previously. Um, the other is that players love Dusty Baker. I mean, he is one of the most revered figures and just most pleasant figures in the game. I mean, any profile you read, and one of my favorites is that oral history that The Athletic did of players talking about Dusty and all of his quirks, um, is just delightful. And you can see why the Astros didn't really, I think, sort of care all that much about the managerial side and the uh, mm -hmm. you know and the and the the analytics in hiring the manager and they wanted a human shield for the scandal um, and the other part of this to not let the Astros off the hook entirely here and not let baseball off the hook either is that you know it's not like baseball turned its back on the Astros players who were part of that 
part of the cheating were signed by other teams. Front office people were signed by other teams. And Jim Crane in the last week basically said outright that other people cheated too. He implied it, but that was the message. Then it wasn't fair necessarily that the Astros receive all this criticism. And I don't think that's a good look. No, it's not. I mean, it's not a it's not a good look for baseball to keep talking about this. I mean, Rob Manfred had to answer for it last year when they were in the World Series, and I'm sure every time they're in the World Series, people will ask Rob about whether or not that's good or bad for baseball. Hannah Kaiser is a national baseball writer for Yahoo Sports. Hannah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Up next, we'll talk with TCU alumnus and former football player Joel Anderson about the college football weekend. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Saturday evening in Tiger Stadium, LSU was trailing Alabama 31-24 in overtime and needed to score at least a touchdown in extra point to keep the game going. Quarterback Jaden Daniels scampered around the right end and cut back inside to score a 25-yard touchdown on LSU's first offensive play in the extra period. And then, needing only an extra point to send the game into a second overtime, LSU decided to end things on the next play. Here's what happened. And that was Chris Fowler on the call for ESPN. Josh, sounds really exciting, right? I was excited. Yeah. You seem excited now. I shouted. That, that, that does not sound like you shouting. But uh, So Daniels' completion to Mason Taylor lifted LSU to a 32-31 upset of its arch rival and knocked sixth-ranked Alabama from national championship contention, its earliest elimination since 2010. It was suggested afterward that maybe there's a changing of the guard, not just in the SEC, but in college football overall. Just look around. Georgia has firmly established itself as the dominant program. Alabama is trending down, and LSU and Tennessee, both teams who've prevailed over the tide this year, seem to be back. So, Josh, for much of 2022, people laughed at LSU and first-year head coach Brian Kelly because it seemed like such a poor fit. This Midwestern copperbagger trying to woo these rabid Louisianans and their families. But maybe we shouldn't be laughing at your favorite team anymore. It's the nicest thing you've ever said and makes me suspicious about the rug about, about to be uh, 
pulled out. I mean, I mean Alex Kirchner and his piece for Slate over the weekend, I think, framed the Kelly and LSU situation very well. And that the only thing that's really relevant about about Brian Kelly is that he has a track record of winning football games. And that you saw it with Nick Saban at LSU. The guy's not from Louisiana, won a lot of football games. Everybody loved him until they didn't when he left. So um, the only real job requirement is beating Alabama. And so you can... Uh, check that off the list and establish himself as somebody who the fan base feels like is deserving of the job. But Alex also wrote about a, a couple other things, Stefan, that show that LSU is not just the team that's doing well this year, but they're a team that kind of shows what college football's future is and will be. Team full of transfers, instant rebuild that you especially when you pay a coach, you know, 100 million or so guaranteed like they did for Brian Kelly, there's not any going to be any leeway given for, you know, things like rebuilding. With the transfer portal, there's going to be an expectation that even a team that had been down like LSU will just be great every year. There's just no will never be any excuse or allowance ever for a team that considers itself a blue blood to ever have a down season, which that's a lot of pressure. Um but then also, you have this team that was objectively quite poor for stretches of the season. First game of the year, they got blown out against Florida State. They also got blown out by Tennessee. But we're still in the 14 playoff era. They still have a chance if they win the SEC to make the playoff. But again, Stefan, in the 12-team playoff era, you will see teams like this who have bad stretches that they can you know, find their form and get hot at the end and maybe win a championship. And that is a huge change from how college football has always operated. Yeah, but we're not there yet. I mean, was Joel too quick to dismiss Alabama's chances of making the playoff? I mean, there's still no. a few weeks to go here, Joel, and um, Alabama mm-hmm. will always be a sentimental committee-type favorite. Um, and if you wind up with two or three two-loss teams and Alabama goes on to, you know, to win out... Um, isn't it still possible no. that Nick Saban no. gets the benefit of the doubt? You really think it's over? Well, I mean, they—they're not even. I mean, LSU is a game up on them for the uh, to even get to the SEC championship right. game, and, and and I believe Ole Miss is at this point too. So Alabama's only pathway, obviously, is to go undefeated mm-hmm. the rest of the way, and if they do that, they'll beat Ole Miss, and if they beat Ole Miss, then LSU only needs to win one game to win the SEC title because they have the tiebreaker because they beat Ole Miss and Alabama. Their only pathway just makes it impossible for them to get to the title game. Isn't there a pathway that LSU loses in the SEC title game? But um, Stefan, there are, I mean, I don't, it, it pains me to say this, but there are other teams outside the SEC, such as <laughs> Michigan, and Ohio State, Ohio State yeah. TCU. Mm. There are a bunch of Pac-12 teams that only have one loss. Um, you've got your Clemson with one loss. You've got Tennessee that still has one loss. You've got undefeated Georgia. I mean, they would have to pass like so many different teams that I think even Nick Saban is not uh, capable of. I will say that voters, it would not shock me for voters to elevate a two-loss Alabama team over some of those one-loss teams. We'll talk about it offline. I will bet you whatever amount of money you want to bet okay. at whatever amount of odds. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not a betting man, but sure. No, you're not a betting man. You get very aggressive there with that betting. No, thing, but you're but just yeah. wrong. Okay. So I'm okay. happy, to, happy to take advantage of that. Happy to be wrong. The thing is, Josh is right, but look how defensive he gets in the face of uh, challenging LSU's uh, 
divine right to play in the SEC championship game. <laughs> divine right. That's a, that's exactly right, Joel. You said that Georgia is kind of by acclamation the not only the best team this year, but the best program. I always feel like, and not to defend Stefan here, but um, rumors of Alabama's demise are always exaggerated. And so mm-hmm. why why are you so quick to crown Georgia as like the best program in well, America? Well, let me just back up for a second because the thing that, that opens the door for Georgia is Alabama's decline. And so Alabama did make it to the national championship game last year. Um, had Some decline. <laughs> you're right. The Heisman Trophy winner and they had the best defensive player in the country, right? In Will Anderson. Well, not my cousin, but whatever. Um but I think if you looked at them play over the last few years, and particularly this year, you see the erosion of talent in spots at Alabama. Like, they're not as dominant on the offensive or defensive lines. The defensive backs, which used to be Nick Saban's specialty, like, that's how he came up through the coaching pipeline. The defensive backs don't play nearly as well as they used to. Uh, they have never... I mean, since they lost that great wide receiving class that had um, John Michi, Jamison Williams, um, and then really if you go further back to Jerry Judy, Jalen Waddell, those guys, they don't have a dude at receiver. Devontae Smith. Devontae Smith, yeah, the Heisman Trophy winner from a couple years ago. They've not, it's taken them a couple years and they still not really replaced those guys. But I think the thing that um, is most interesting here to me is that people think Nick Saban is sort of like Tom Brady or LeBron and that they think he's the same and that because he sort of looks the same and he's been on the sideline and Alabama's been really good, not as dominant, but pretty good, that it's all the same. But Nick Saban is 71 years old. His best years are behind him at this point. Like, I think that's pretty much inarguable. And the question is, does he have any great seasons left? And the thing that I would like to use here is – 70, using sort of 70 years old is the dividing line here. Bobby Bowden, after he turned 70, never in the running for a national championship again. He went 12-0 and that year, won a title. The next year, he went 11-2, and and then he never lost fewer than three games again after he turned 70. Joe Paterno, after he turned 70, they went 11-2 and in 1996 and won the Fiesta Bowl. He coached for 15 more years and had as many seven-loss seasons as one-loss seasons during that stretch, and not really any great ones anymore. Even Eddie Robinson, and so I'm talking about Nick Saban's peers here, Eddie Robinson, He's 70 years old. The last year he won a conference title outright. Of the next eight seasons, only one could be considered pretty good by his former standard. And in half of those seasons, he lost at least six games. So Nick Saban has a claim as possibly the greatest coach in the history of college football. But I don't think we can overlook the fact that he's getting older, the fact that he keeps losing staff. Like you, Eventually, you cannot keep replacing all the people you lose on staff. Like Brian Dayball is the head coach of the New York Giants. He used to be your offensive coordinator. Like you just can't. That brain drain eventually keeps up with you, catches up with you, as you might see with a guy like Bill Belichick. So I think that I'm more predicting what seems to me to be obvious, that it just can never be as good for Alabama as it has been. And yet Saban did pretty well in the transfer portal this past off season, right? Um, and, you know, that loss to LSU, I didn't watch all of the game, Josh, but, wow. you know, is that shock? Wow. Shock. Shock. Wow. Well, you were, he was busy watching the Astros. Yeah. That's what it, that was going on. You know, soaking up. No, he was watching a replay of the MLS Cup final. <laughs> 
I uh, did not watch the replay. I was watching it live. But, you know, because it was so good, you just wanted to see it again. Can I finish my thought? Would that be okay? <laughs> um, they lost by one point when LSU, which had nothing to lose, decided to go for it and win the game outright. Oh, they had everything to lose, Stefan. Did they? Yes. <laughs> Explain how. They already had the two losses. Go ahead. Well, I thought it was an interesting analysis in that it's generally considered like you're going to get crazily criticized as a coach in that moment if you go for it and you don't make it, whether it's fourth down or a big two-point sure. conversion like that. But for Kelly, I think in his first season, I think it does establish a kind of like we're just going to go after Alabama and not be afraid and just like try to take it to them and that there would be a certain kind of like respect for that even if they um, didn't make it and lost, I guess we'll never know. But I, I think there's always incredibly high stakes in this game for both teams, but especially for LSU, just because they have such a complex about Alabama and Saban. And so, you know, they do have a theoretical chance now to make the, the playoff. And so they did have that to lose. And like, they now are the favorite to get to the SEC championship game. So they did have that to lose. Um, and so I, I think... It's a little unfair to say that this was like a free roll or something like that. I'm not saying it was a free roll. I'm saying it was an incredibly gutsy roll. Um, they win the game right there. Yeah. And it's they're, they're still in contention for the national championship. They're still in contention to win the SEC. Um, it's a pretty great move. I mean, if they kick the extra point and it's tied 50-50 going forward. Yeah, and I kind of think, I kind of agree. So if LSU loses this game, like, I don't think any... And as long as they were competitive, and they were, then I think people can look at the program and feel pretty good about the direction. But on the on the other hand, by winning it, then we're having the conversations that we're having today, which is everybody realizes, oh, wait, Brian Kelly is actually a really good coach, uh, and he's won everywhere he's been. And why wouldn't he win at LSU now that he has access to all the athletes that he couldn't get to Notre Dame, right? Um, so I think that the, the win was big for narrative, less for like the actual results of the season. Cause I still think even though LSU is going to play in the SEC championship game, I don't think anybody thinks they're really going to make the playoff. Right. Yeah. They're huge, huge underdogs to, you know, and it's probably, it, it's certainly not a sure thing that they'll go undefeated the rest of the regular season. Like they have to play at Arkansas and at Texas A&M. Um, and so, yeah, it's yeah. it's a it's a long shot um, for sure. Um, but I wanted to talk about A and M because I'm obsessed with what's going on there um, with Jimbo Fisher having this 95 million dollar contract brought in by a school that um, has seen college football supremacy as kind of its rightful path and has thrown everything possible to get there since it joined the SEC. Um, you know new stadium, just an incredible amount of booster money to um, finance everything to get that contract, which LSU's now athletic director gave to Jimbo Fisher, the biggest like guaranteed contract ever in the history of the sport. And then <laughs> these number one recruiting classes, Joel, that they've kind of had roll in year after year and all of this NIL money that's going to all of these players. And so to see mm -hmm. them lose five in a row, like they have the latest to Florida this mm. weekend, it is an absolute debacle. And 
I, I guess the two, I'm curious what your view on it is. Number one, one possible view is the SEC West is maybe the toughest division in like any sport. It's just like, to to be to do what Alabama has done and just dominate every year, that's what makes it Saban the best coach ever and the most accomplished coach ever. It's just like all of these places are just throwing every possible resource and it's just highly competitive. And so to imagine that you could throw money at it and just win all the time is just like not, it's not possible. It's like hubris to think that you could do it. Um, or the, I guess the other argument is that like, yeah, if you do invest all this money and get the number one recruiting classes, you should honestly do better. Like even with the gravity of the SEC pulling everything down, that they just like have massively fucked this up. And, it, and it's really tough because A&M has always sort of occupied this space in college football where the belief is that they should be doing better than they are. Um, and it's still really good. Like they're a pretty good school, but they've never actually been a consistent national championship contender. And so I don't With know. With the amount they've invested in it, you would have think like, oh yeah, they've won four national championships or, you know. <laughs> right. And I think the thing is maybe at A&M's part that there's a lot of delusion there. One, that Jimbo Fisher is the guy. And th- to believe that Jimbo Fisher is the guy, you have to overlook the fact that, yes, he did build one of the best college football teams in college football history at Florida State in 2013 with Jameis Winston, right? But then you have to ignore how the program fell apart, like, right before he left and he leapt over to A&M. Um, and so it's like people should think about, man, what was going on there? Yeah, anybody can build a champion for one year, as uh, Ed Orgeron can show you, right? But, like, to sustain a program. Yeah, that's a really good point, Stefan. Like, what if... Jimbo had stayed around for a couple of years and had the like bad years mm-hmm. that Coach O had at LSU, or if like Coach O had left LSU yeah. after they won a championship, like it would have, uh, we would have thought of those coaches differently. And I think the other thing for people that aren't Texans and who've never been to College Station, um, this is the thing about college football that's great because I wanted to mention that about Georgia that like you know a little bit about the towns and the cultures around the program. College Station is a weird fucking place, man. You know what I mean? Like just it's really hard to get. Black inner city kids, Dallas, Houston, everywhere else to want to go there. And it's, I mean, you can, but they have sort of not, 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 not in the proportion though that you would, that you would think. Um, and historically so they haven't once upon a time in the nineties. There's no, there's no number in a recruiting class higher than number one. You think they should have been number zero in the recruiting, in the recruiting rankings? Well, no, I mean, this is, I mean, this is a new thing though. I mean, this is the first time that this has ever happened and under the auspices of the NIL era, but I don't, I don't think that that's going to be ultimately sustainable. Like, I think you can do it once. I don't think that you can always do it. I mean, Ole Miss had great recruiting class. It went a few freezers there, but I don't think anybody would look askance if I said, you know what, it's really hard to get black athletes to go to Ole Miss consistently. And I think that that's sort of the same thing with College Station, that it's like, yeah, you can do it. You can do a one-off, but can you do it at the rate that Georgia, Alabama, some of those other programs can? No, I don't, I don't think so. And I think we're going to see that class is probably going to fall apart this year. Like a lot of guys are going to transfer out. Um, maybe they're not going to be eligible, whatever. Uh, and, and then we'll see what A&M really is, which is fundamentally an eight and four program. That's, all, that's who they've always been. That's who they're always going to be. Um, maybe every, you know, maybe the one year that people got excited about happened during that pandemic year. Um, and people drew a lot of conclusions from that. And I just think that, you know, in the long term, A&M is going to settle back to the mean. It's not going to be as bad as it is this year, but it's never going to be as great as they think it should be. Before we finish up with TCU, um, Joel, 
what do you do, Josh, about about Jimbo Fisher? This is a $95 million guaranteed contract through 2031. It got off on completely the wrong foot or the most amusing foot back in, in the winter with that Nick Saban-Jimbo feud about who's recruiting and who's buying. And then Lane Kiffin got dragged into it, and he's been trolling Fisher since uh, during the season. And so what do you do? Is $95 million not the ceiling for how much uh, a college football school and its boosters are willing to, to, to write a check for to get rid of a coach? Is there a limit? If they bought him out for that amount of money, I think it would just be like maybe the grossest thing that's happened and like a really gross uh, sport. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. I think what they'll do, and we've already kind of heard rumblings of this, right, Joel, is they'll just like replace every person on that staff and in that institution that you could possibly replace who isn't Jimbo Fisher. They'll strip it for parts. That's right. <laughs> because the thing that's so remarkable about it is that he's known as this offensive guru, this quarterback guru, and they have this streak where they like can't score more than 24 points. I mean, I guess they scored 28 in a loss um, a couple of weeks ago. But in a high-scoring era in college football, in a school that has like every like great skill position player coming out of high school, they just can't do anything on offense. And you have like Lane Kiffin, who's mm -hmm. really... He he had a reputation kind of earlier in his career as being a little bit of a huckster, a lot of a huckster, and kind of being all sizzle and no steak. I mean, that guy is very good at coaching offensive football at Ole Miss. I mean, if they had him with his recruiting classes, I don't think there's any question that they would be like doing miles upon miles better. Um, and so they've just got to find... Like when LSU, you know, brought in, uh, you know, an offensive guru to like pair with Joe Burrow under uh, uh, at Ogeron, like it, it can turn around. I'm not saying it's likely that it that it will, but I'm saying it, given the talent they have there, it can turn around pretty quickly. And I think still with Jimbo Fisher there. It's going to require Jimbo to give up control of that offense. And as you see with offensive coaches, yeah, and it may not happen. But, you know, hey, look, there's another alternative to a $95 million buyout. And I don't know if you guys were watching the Paul Feinbaum show a month ago before the losing streak had gotten quite as bad. The A&M fan told Feinbaum, hey, a hitman is a lot cheaper than a $95 million oh buyout. So <laughs> that's how well things are going in College Station. And that was a month ago. All right, quickly, Joel, are you happy? You know, happiness isn't a permanent state. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's not a fixed state. Uh, you go in and out of it. Uh, that is life. Uh, check back with me uh, next Monday oh, after. No, don't worry. Austin. No, I, I know. I know you will. I'm sure you will. In the next segment, we're going to talk to me about Herschel Walker. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. 538's latest Senate forecast gives Republicans a 54% chance of winning control of that body. So basically a dead heat. And one of the likeliest tipping point states is Georgia, where Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock is running against Republican Herschel Walker. You may have heard of that second guy, used to play for the Georgia Bulldogs, went to the USFL, then the Cowboys, got traded to the Vikings for a huge haul of draft picks, allegedly threatened his ex-wife with a gun, allegedly paid for a couple of abortions, despite allegedly being pro-life with no exceptions. But anyway, control of one of the main levers of our democracy might come down to whether he wins or loses. And in a piece published this weekend on Slate.com, our own Joel Anderson asked an important question. Why? Why is Herschel doing this? Joel, to answer that question, you spoke to his old karate teacher, the guy who was the artistic director of the Fort Worth Ballet back when Walker made a cameo appearance with him in the 80s. Um, What did you learn from those conversations and from all your other research into what is going on inside Herschel Walker's head? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I guess, you know, Herschel Walker has spent much of the last 25 years, which is, you know, dates to the end of his NFL career, if not the last 40 which is the end of his college career, sort of trying to capture the former glory of his playing days. And look, I mean, the important thing to remember, um, everybody that here that follows sports should know that hardly anyone who's played college football did it as well or as legendarily as Herschel Walker. Um, for a lot of people, their memories of him are fixed on this period from 1980 to 82 when he was the best player in college football and maybe the best college football player ever. Like ESPN just a couple of years ago ranked him the second best college football player of all time behind Jim Brown. Um, he was a five-star recruit before people really even called him that. And he led Georgia to a national championship as a freshman. And then he really got famous over the next two seasons. And so um, the theory of the piece is that he's been chasing that high ever since. Um, you know, this great, you know, warrior athlete, who also has been smart or thoughtful or maybe just cynical enough to create a sort of off-field persona that is a renaissance man. He's a poet. He's danced. He's uh, done MMA, karate, run his own business, uh, wanted to be the face of mental illness in this country. Um, He's always been sort of reaching and hoping that he can be back in the spotlight in the way that he was in the early 1980s or even during the course of his NFL career. How much of Herschel Walker's, of this mythology that Herschel Walker has erected around himself, actually is grounded in truth? Um, feels like a lot of what Walker has written in his autobiography and things that he has said publicly just don't hold up to any scrutiny whatsoever. Um, and, you know, whether that's a comment on the politics of our times or not, and obviously it is in some ways, it's troubling that he's been able to just sort of perpetuate this this false story about his life for so long, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter for Herschel Walker is that the football part is gold. Right. Like, you know, right, like all that is true and it can be verified. He was that good for people who don't remember him playing. He was that dude. Although, you know, and I read an interesting piece by a guy, um, um, 
uh, a columnist for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram who argues that Herschel Walker was not quite as good of a college football player as we remember, and that a lot of that is mythology as well. I wasn't old enough to watch Herschel Walker at that time, so I don't remember. But I do remember him always being famous and a good football player from that time. But the the, the broader thing is that anything away from football, then we sort of venture into, I don't know if he's telling the truth about that, from the idea that he told people that he was the valedictorian of his high school class and a member of the beta club and the school. Like, if any place would want to verify that, it would be the high school that he went to, and they've not been able to verify that he was the valedictorian, right? Um, that he graduated in the top 1% of his class at the University of Georgia. The University of Georgia is like, man, that dude doesn't even have a college degree. Uh, the business that he ran, the, uh, the sort of like a chicken, a, ch- a chicken products business. And he says, Oh, this is one of the biggest, largest companies in the country. And that's not true whatsoever. So, uh, you know, it's <laughs> once you start getting away from football, it's kind of all the, all the other myth making that he did for himself in large part. It does seem to be largely myth, not necessarily true. And I, I, I just one quick thing. Um, growing up, you know, the thing they said about Herschel Walker is that he did not lift weights. Um, I just remember this. Like, this was a big part of the mythology around it. That Herschel Walker, every night, did thousands of push-ups and sit-ups. And I was just like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, that just sounds stupid. And I've always even thought that that was a lie. Like, going back as a kid, I was like, that didn't even... That just sounds like the kind of thing you say to make people think that you're a special kind of a guy. And I don't know. The numbers always change. He said... 2,500 push-ups, 1,000 push-ups. Like, it always sort of differs every time people ask him. Um, and so I just think this is just a, bit, a large bit of who he is, is that he's had to construct all this other stuff around it. And people were willing to do it. Um, people were willing to believe him uh, up until now when he's in the middle of the spotlight. So one of the most interesting things that you dug up was this profile of Herschel written by Henry Lieferman for the New York Times Magazine, in 1981, which is at the height of Herschel mania. And the thing that's so interesting about it can drill down to it just with this one quote that you put in your piece. And and I'm quoting from from the article here. It is also said he is not the quiet, reasonable, hardworking young man he presents himself to be, but a teenage black Svengali coolly calculating plans for fame and fortune ever since high school. So you could say, like, oh, well, this, they were kind of on to him from the beginning there. That's kind of what we're, we're, what you've been saying about him now. But the word that's in there that's just, like, doesn't need to be in there is black. Just, like, yeah. that doesn't really have anything to do with, you know, you could just say a teenage Svengali coolly calculating plans for fame and fortune ever since high school. And I feel like if we had read that at the time, I mean, maybe not at the time, but, like, reading that now not knowing about anything else about Herschel Walker or his political views or the lies or anything, it'd be like, that seems kind of like, you know, racist or like it. So it's just interesting to look back at this and look about, look at like, did they actually have him pegged at the time? Or was it like, this is a black guy at this like predominantly white, you know, Southern school, just like making lots of waves in ways that, that people weren't happy about. Well, and the first four words of, of that quote are the ones that you should also focus on a little. It is also said. <laughs> yeah. Not exactly the most, uh, the most uh, solid sourcing. 
Yeah, it, I mean, it was a surprisingly skeptical piece. Normally, you don't see uh, a profile of a college football star be quite that skeptical. Usually, it's more fawning, right? It ventures into hagiography. But um, I think the context for that is that the big... Um, it goes back to Herschel Walker when he was in high school and they had what essentially was like racial tumult in his hometown. And the black people there wanted Herschel Walker to side with them. And he kept distance from them. He said, I'm not, I don't know anything about this. I don't want to be interested. And as a result, a lot of the black people from his hometown and a lot of black people in Georgia were skeptical of him from then on out. And so if you look at that story and you read the quotes, it's a lot. There's a, um, a track athlete named Mel Latney. Um, who I did try to talk to and, and, and did not uh, take my call. But they talk about how Herschel Walker, you know, goes out with white women and, you know, um, which is just sort of like a weird thing. But I mean, this, keep in mind, this is the 1980s. This is like <laughs> sort of a new uh, um, interracial relationships were uh, at least that went that way. Black man, white woman on a college campus was sort of a, a newer uh, development. So I can kind of understand how it came up. But I think a lot of the skepticism and the ways that people thought about him, what you're reading there is, and when they say it is also said, I think that is a lot of the black people that have been around Herschel Walker for most of his life are skeptical of him and think that he's putting on airs and think that he's putting on a front. And if you look at, you know, polling today, if you look at, you talk to people today, it's much the same thing. The people that have elevated Herschel Walker throughout much of, most of his life have been wealthy, connected white men from Georgia. And that is the story of his football career. That's been the story of his post-football career. And that is the story of his Senate campaign. A lot of white wealthy benefactors have been desirous of making him the face of that state come hell or high water. And here we are again. Well, and we need to get into the why. I mean, what is it about Herschel Walker that he's this willing vehicle for white people's exploitation, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think people, I mean, people can see the desire he has to maintain that sort of a platform, to be that guy. And so at that rate, he's just a vessel. You're not going to get Herschel Walker pushing back. You're not going to get Herschel Walker advocating for things that make people in power uncomfortable. Um, and his, his primary goal, and as he's mentioned in his autobiography and in uh, over and over again is that he wanted to be famous. He wanted to be noticed. And this is a way to do that. But if you do that, then you don't necessarily have any sort of ethical or moral grounding, right? That Like you don't politically, he's not saying, you know, I really want to do this. And now he's saying it, but like, if your prime, if your primary uh, goal is to be famous, that doesn't set you up to be a really good politician or a good public servant. And so um, I think that's how they've been able to get to him. That's, because he's willing, but also, I mean, man, are there four more famous Georgians than Herschel Walker? Like Jimmy Carter, uh, Ray Charles, who else? Ty I mean, Cobb. you know, get Ty Cobb. <laughs> I mean, so if you you're you're running you're running that guy, like it makes sense on its face. Like if you were cynical enough, um, and you just want to win power, and that guy is going to be somebody that you can work with and not push back. Uh, and you have access to him and he's willing to do it, then why not? Why not run Herschel Walker? It's a really cynical play, but it, I mean, if we're looking at polling, it, it looks like it might actually work. So the guy in the Senate who is arguably <laughs> as unqualified or as 
seemingly like poorly um, equipped to handle that role is Tommy Tuberville, <laughs> the former college football coach who also made his name in the SEC. And there's an obvious like kind of surface level connection to be made there that being a prominent figure in football just gives you the kind of name recognition. Um, but huge difference here is that in Alabama, if you're a Republican running statewide, you're going to win. Hmm. And so he just had all that Tommy Tuberville had to prove is that he was the most obsequious to Donald Trump. Right. Like that was the kind of, um, you know, path that he had to go down, which seemed very easy for him to do. That wasn't much of a stretch. But in Georgia, Walker not only had to win over the kinds of people who would make the decision about who the Republican is to run in that race, but he also has to legitimately win a statewide election um, against an incumbent, Raphael Warnock. And so, you know, Joel, what have you seen or what do you think about Walker's ability to appeal to people who just don't agree with his politics mm -hmm. at all and like trying, you know, he's had a whole lifetime of like develop, developing a persona or trying to develop a persona that appeals to the most people possible. While this, while now he has the set of, of views on abortion and on many other things that a huge percentage of people find to be just crazy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the important thing to remember about Herschel Walker is that he doesn't have to have like a uh, coherent political philosophy, and the Republicans know that. Um, and that Herschel Walker has been a famous person in Georgia for the last 40 plus years. Um, he's been in front of crowds. He's signed autographs. Um, you know, he's been one of their most popular, famous Native sons. And yes, I mean, he's black. And the hope is that in a state that is not quite purple, more red than blue, but obviously Georgia has two Democratic senators right now, but in an off-year uh, off election that Herschel Walker can pick off a few of those black voters that, you know, hey, man, I know Herschel. I've lived here for years. I've seen him. He's famous. He's a famous football player. And the other thing, I mean, the, the one other thing is that, you know, so I did talk to a lot of people. Not everybody I talked to made it into the article. But a lot of people like Herschel Walker, man. He's, a, you know, you can see where he's a likable guy. He doesn't say a lot. He sort of carries himself in that humble <laughs> that humble pose that people like out of black athletes. Um, he's not, you know, overly braggadocious, you know, not a loud guy, um, just seems to be sort of quiet, uh, well-meaning, well-intentioned, soft-spoken, all that stuff. And so that does have some appeal as we've sort of been able to see here, right? Um, not everybody can do what Herschel Walker is able to do right here. Um, in, in spite of being so clearly and obviously out of his depth, um, but like all the things that make Herschel Walker a legend in Georgia are, are, are keeping him afloat right now against a guy who, I mean, you know, you'd think Raphael Warnock, a, a, a black uh, Baptist preacher, man, you know what I mean? Uh, that preaches at Martin Luther King's old church. You'd think that that guy would have a built in advantage, but that's just not how, uh, you know, this is not how it's working right now. One last thing I would want to bring up, Joel, is that you mentioned in the piece, you get into how Walker's connection with Donald Trump is at the foundation of all this. I mean, Trump mm -hmm. is the one that that 
that, that signed him with the New Jersey Generals and the USFL. And at the time, as you point out, Walker basically lied to his coach at Georgia, Vince Dooley, and to the whole state about whether he had signed a contract and whether he would be returning to play another season at Georgia. And just real quickly, talk about how that relationship ends up getting to where we are now. Yeah, right. So when when Herschel is leaving Georgia after his junior year, which is something that is, I mean, did not happen. I mean, the NFL wouldn't even take underclassmen at the time. So the USFL is a new league. It starts up and they make a splash by signing Herschel Walker and he signs with the New Jersey Generals. Uh, and they, he's playing for an old Oklahoma oil man who owns the team. The next year, Donald Trump comes in, buys the New Jersey Generals and Herschel Walker plays for Donald Trump for the next two years. Herschel Walker was taken with Trump. Uh, in the book he writes, and in the piece I put, in a lot of ways, Mr. Trump became a mentor to me. And I modeled myself and my business practices after him. Well, shit. I mean, you know, so Herschel, you know, followed him onto Celebrity Apprentice. He started businesses. When he, when he started that chicken products business, he consulted with Donald Trump. Um, he later served on Trump's Council for Sports Fitness and Nutrition. They've, you know, uh, Herschel Walker was seen campaigning with Donald Trump at points during his presidential campaign. So yeah, they're really, really close. And he's meant a lot to Herschel Walker. And you, you'd think that this would seem incongruous, that Herschel Walker promotes himself as a quiet, humble, Christian, uh, you know, a, a devoted, devout young man from Georgia. And he's you know, attached himself to this loudmouth provocateur in Donald Trump. But for whatever reason, the relationship seems to work. And I wonder if Herschel Walker sees in Donald Trump what he wishes he was, that he was more audacious, a little more bold, um, someone who is desirous of the spotlight under any circumstances. You know, for Donald Trump, there's no such thing as a bad headline, basically. So Herschel Walker probably sees a lot of that and wants it for himself. And, you know, you know, it's not a surprise that Donald Trump is the person that pushed Herschel Walker into running for this, for this, in running in this race. And uh, presumably, if Herschel wins, uh, you know, who's to say that Donald Trump hasn't convinced him that there are higher offices uh, in store for him someday? So, um, yeah, man, it's 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 pretty bad. You would never think that the New Jersey Generals. I mean, they weren't a good football team. But you would never think they would have left this kind of legacy, right? <laughs> Joel, your piece is headlined, Herschel Walker Just Can't Stop. It's great. Um, everybody should check it out. We'll link to it in our show notes. Uh, Joel Anderson, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. A pleasure. Now it is time for Afterballs, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. We just mentioned that Herschel Walker's coach at Georgia was Vince Dooley, and Dooley, as it happens, died late last month at the age of 90. In 25 years at Georgia, from 1963 to 1988, Dooley had 201 wins. 
20 bowl appearances, six SEC titles, and one national championship. He's a Hall of Famer, a titan of Georgia and college football. But there was much more to Vince Dooley than just football. His New York Times obit noted that Dooley audited classes in history, art history, political science, and horticulture, which was a particular interest of his. Particular interest is putting it mildly. The great writer and Southerner Tommy Tomlinson profiled Dooley for Garden and Gun magazine in 2017. It's a great piece. We'll link to it on our show page. Tomlinson details how Dooley in retirement first became curious and then obsessive about plants. With the help of two Georgia horticulture professors, Dooley eventually curated a garden at his Athens home with more than a thousand types of flowers and shrubs. He wrote a book called Vince Dooley's Garden, traveled the world visiting gardens and speaking at gardening conferences, and to top it off, had varieties of both a camellia and a hydrangea named for him. The hydrangea was an actual discovery. Tomlinson writes that Dooley's wife, Barbara, had bought three big leaf hydrangeas in 1968, and one of the professors decades later noticed that it might be a unique variety and named it the Dooley hydrangea. The Vince Dooley Camellia, though, was named in the coach's honor by the American Camellia Society in 2004. Its petals are scarlet red, not too far off from the red in Georgia's uniforms. Joel, what's your Vince Dooley Camellia? <laughs> so... Last weekend, ESPN's College Game Day swept into Jackson, Mississippi to showcase Deion Sanders and the dominant football program he's built at Jackson State University. It was only the second time that an HBCU, a historically black college or university, for those who are unfamiliar with the acronym, had hosted Game Day over the course of the show's 35 years. The first time happened in 2008 when Florida A&M welcomed ESPN's flagship college football show for a showdown against Hampton. It's almost always a good thing when game day comes to town and turns its cameras and reporters on a school. You'll get some profiles of the game's most important players and a little background on the institution, both of which happened during the show. And last Saturday's visit was good for ratings. ESPN said the show had 1.8 million viewers, with 2.3 million tuning in for the final hour. Airing the show from Jackson State helped the network register its best nine-week start since 2009. It'd be hard not to credit Dion for at least some of that bump. Hell, without Dion, game day likely wouldn't have been there in the first place. We talked about this last week uh, during our segment on Dion game day and his 60 Minutes profile. He's been, by pretty much any standard, a smashing success at Jackson State. It's no question why his name keeps coming up as a candidate for open head coaching positions at Auburn, Arizona State, and Georgia Tech, just to name a few. He's been 23-5 and in his time at Jackson State, including a 14-0 record in the Southwestern Athletic Conference. With a few more victories, Sanders and Jackson State could clinch their second straight league title. The Tigers also rank in the top 10 in the FCS division, right behind powers like William & Mary and North Dakota State. And that's to say nothing of the attention and resources he's been able to draw to Jackson. From Barstool Sports, Walmart, Magic Johnson, he's even been able to bring in rappers like Snoop and Rick Ross and so on. Dion has made the most of this opportunity, and Jackson State has been the biggest beneficiary. But as anyone who listened to our segment on Dion last week knows, I'm a little annoyed at the suggestion that Dion, 
and Dion alone has revived interest in Jackson State and HBCUs. I'm thinking of a Sports Illustrated article from June headlined, How Dion Sanders is Fueling the Rise of HBCU Football. Another headline from September that reads, After a dominating win, it's as clear as day Dion Sanders has changed the HBCU landscape completely. 60 Minutes build their segment from last month as, How Dion Sanders is Changing the Future of College Football at Jackson State. But as you surely know, they clearly weren't talking about his impact on Georgia or USC. And, you know, there's been a lot more chatter along those lines on social media the past couple years, and especially the past couple of weeks. But look, here's a little history. Jackson State joined the Southwestern Athletic Conference in 1958. In the 64 years since, the Tigers have won more than a quarter of the league championships. And while it's true that Sanders won the school's first SWAC title in 14 years last fall, Jackson State has winning records against all but three of the league's current members, which is to say... Jackson State has always fared well against its peers, and sometimes much better. As I mentioned last week, Jackson State has also produced four Pro Football Hall of Famers, Lim Barney, Robert Brazil, Walter Payton, and Jackie Slater. Only 13 college football teams have produced more Hall of Famers than Jackson State. And Jackson State has produced more than all of the other major Mississippi schools. That's Ole Miss, Mississippi State, and Southern Miss combined. They won, sometimes big. They've had their share of talent. And guess what? Jackson State has always supported its boys. Jackson State University has, is historically one of the leaders in attendance for FCS schools, having been number one every year since 2017. It was number one three years before Sanders arrived on campus, is number one today, and presumably will be number one for years to come. ESPN Game Day did its part to tell at least some of that story. The crew came to town and put on a good show. They scoped out a historic diner that once fed civil rights activists and highlighted the 1974 team that featured three of those four Hall of Famers, Peyton, Slater, and Brazil, but that finished seven and three and in third place in the SWAC. And of course, there was a lot of Dion. Dion, as is his wont, basked in the attention and adulation. We'll play a clip here. How would you put in perspective what you faced when you came here to get this program to this point, the vision that it took when you first initially got here? Well, it's, it's no way to get to the top without facing adversity. It's some tremendous adversity. Oftentimes, adversity is inside the house as well as outside the house. But See, that might seem like an offhand remark there, but I want to put a pin in that for a second. Sanders, maybe by accident, maybe not, has repeatedly given the impression that HBCUs don't know how to handle their own business. That the reasons HBCUs have slipped in talent and prominence over the past few decades is because they squandered some sort of advantages they should have over, say, Tulane or South Florida. And that's great for Dion because it sets him up to be a savior. He can sweep into the swack, call in some favors, draw lots of attention, and win a bunch of games and ask everyone else why they can't do the same. He got Walmart's CEO on the phone, and Jackson State got a new practice field. His friend Michael Strahan hooked the school up with suits from his clothing line. Another friend, Magic Johnson, helped to get a new dining hall built for the players. Why can't Alabama A&M and Texas Southern do the same, right? If Dion can do it, so can they. Or so goes the assumption there. But no. HBCUs are star for resources for lots of reasons, some of them because they serve a population that traditionally doesn't have tens of millions of dollars to spend on capital projects, and largely because state governments don't kick in their fair share. Higher education experts have said HBCUs have been underfunded for decades, up into billions of dollars in state funding that should have gone to those schools, 
but was diverted by lawmakers for other purposes. As the Alabama A&M president told CBS News last year, our institutions have not, and still are not, being treated the same. I would love it if Dion would remind people of this repeatedly when they ask him how other HBCUs can do the same thing he did at Jackson State. Look, Dion's done some very positive things in a short amount of time, no question. Josh and I both thought he was going to cause a mess there, and boy, we were wrong. But let's not pretend that it's never been done before and that it couldn't be done over and over again in a better and fairer world. HBCUs can't often lean onto Walmart or drum up a little interest from Barstool. Dion and Jackson State are having a moment, and it's big for them, and they should embrace it. But when he's gone, likely as soon as this winter, Jackson State and the SWAC are still going to fill stadiums, still support those athletes as best they can, and fight for resources they should not have to fight for. The real success will be if game day returns to Jackson or anywhere in the SWAC again someday for something other than a one-man show. That was great, Joel. And is it as simple as wanting to hear Dion say something like, yeah, the, the, the issues at Jackson State and at other schools are um, substantial. And like, here are the people that are responsible for that you know, state lawmakers. And that's the one thing that we haven't heard is him like kind of wading into the politics of the situation. And I wonder if that's because he wants to be above politics or if it's because he do- just doesn't see it that way, that he sees it as like the school not taking care of its its business. Yeah, I don't think it would be politically savvy to take on the Mississippi state government, <laughs> right? Because they would only punish Jackson State more. But I also don't think that's where his politics are. I mean, because I think, I mean, we're looking at a guy that's in business with Barstool, right? Um, and I think that you have to be a certain kind of person and have a certain kind of politics to, you know, do business with Barstool and bring them onto your campus. So it may be that he has some understanding that HBCUs are sort of starved for resources, but is not understanding or doesn't care about the larger forces at play there. And I should add, that wouldn't make Dion all that different from a whole bunch of other black people, even those that went to HBCUs, right? Like that puts him firmly in the mainstream, but it's just too bad that somebody at that position has not thought a little bit more deeply or at least decided to articulate um, that, that bind that HBCUs are in. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.